Uh, but we're back in Acts, which is what I just said, so hopefully, yeah, there you go. The mission of God is a kind of overview. What we've been doing is over the weeks, uh, we're into our sixth month now, which is crazy. Over, over that time period, um, we've been just kind of looking at the book of Acts and getting an idea of um, what were some of the cultural things in the early church, what were some of the things that they did, what they stood for. Um, and today's no different, really. We're in Acts chapter 9, and there's this amazing passage where... Uh, Saul, who we've already met, um, basically gets converted, meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. And it's a really challenging passage, but actually there's another guy in there, not Saul, a guy called Ananias, who I think equally we could learn just as much from, but often we just kind of pass over him, like Saul's the big hero, he's the one that goes on to get a bit of a name change and write most of the New Testament. But there's this great guy called Ananias. And we'll have a, a little look at him as well. And then later on in the service, if you've not noticed, we've got some bread and some cups out. We're going to take communion together, um, which flows really nicely out of what I'm talking about this morning as well. So if you've got a Bible, it's Acts chapter 9. I'm just going to read it to you. Um, let it wash over you. There might be some things that just kind of jump out. and You think, oh, that's interesting, or I've not heard that before. Because that's what happens with familiar stories. We kind of take it for granted, don't we? And we think, oh, well, I know this story. But there's always new things that just pop up. So this is Acts chapter 9. It says this. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, um, that's a word to, it's the early kind of name for Christians. So anybody who was a Christian, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light shone from, uh, suddenly from heaven uh, shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were travelling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him, here in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tar Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptised, and taking food, he was strengthened. It's an amazing passage, isn't it, of this guy who is just brutal. I want you to picture Saul as brutal. 
And yet he's walking along, he meets with Jesus, and his life changes forever. He's not that same guy anymore. If you read his letters to the churches, he becomes this kind of gracious, kind, loving man. They're not the kind of adjectives that I think of when I read about what Saul was like. Here's some of the things. I'm going to launch straight in, because actually what we're talking about this morning is really serious. I'm really serious for the church and what we believe and what we're going to be doing in the future. So these are some of the descriptions that are given in scripture of Saul prior to what I just read this morning, which would give you a bit of an idea of what he was like. Stephen, who we looked at a few weeks ago, is stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. And it says this, They cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul is the one who's overseeing the execution of Stephen. He's the one that's there. He's not stopping it. He's quite happy with it. He's letting it go ahead. Acts 8.1. We're told that he approved of the execution of Stephen. 8.3 says this. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. It's not a great image, is it? Ravaging the church. You can just picture him kicking doors down with his cronies, dragging people out into the streets. They're being beaten, they're being bruised, they're being whipped. And then committed into prison. The impression you get, the language that's used by Luke, who's the author, is that actually Saul's a bit of a wild man, isn't he? Ravaged. I kind of think of Luis Suarez. I kind of think of wild beasts. The, you know, like a lion just destroying a zebra. You know, in the nature programs that you want your daughter to watch so she gets a, a wholehearted picture of what the animal kingdom is like. That's the kind of image that is kind of striking in my mind of what this man was like. Just an absolute beast terrorising people. And he's consumed by hatred. He's not happy. He's trying to destroy Christianity. And he's on a mission. He's dragging them off. And Acts chapter 9 is where we pick up, and he's not changed. It opens with this. He's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he's so much so that he's gone to the high priest, and he's gone to him and said, look, I need some sort of kind of official authority to be able to go outside of Jerusalem, to go to a different city, to destroy the Christians there too. And so in one, theory, in, in one way, he's got like extradition papers. He's got these papers, and he's going to Damascus, and on order of these papers... Anybody that is found to follow the way, any Christian is removed, taken out of their home, taken out of their family, and taken to Jerusalem and imprisoned. That's what he's going for. He's going to destroy Christianity in Damascus. So there's nobody left. So nobody in Damascus will hear about this Jesus fellow. It says men or women. He's consumed with hatred, as I've already said. And you know what, to be honest with you, if I could describe Saul, I'd describe him as evil. When you think about him, I don't think he's any different from ISIS today. Do you? And yet, he's this massive hero in the Bible, and that's fine, but look at what he was before them. He's like ISIS. The guys in Iraq, the guys in Syria, the guys in Libya, that are executing, killing, imprisoning Christians. Exactly the same in my eyes, because he's hateful. And you might think that's strong, but recently, in the last two weeks, 21 Egyptian Copts were executed, beheaded, and they filmed it. 
for their faith. I don't know if you've seen it. I wouldn't recommend watching the video. But it's happening today. And this is precisely what Saul was doing. Stephen was executed. He was stoned to death. And it poses a very real question, doesn't it? When we think of ISIS, when we think of people like Saul, can God save them? Is there hope for even what we might class as the most evil people in this world? There was hope for Saul. And so actually I kind of radically believe that there's hope for the people in ISIS as well. For those guys that are currently ravaging the church. This is what, he's en route to Damascus and he encounters Jesus. That's what makes the difference for him. That's what I want to say is going to make a difference for Chesterfield. It's people encountering the living God. It's not going to be just... Um, you know, sometimes we think it's just, oh, if I attend church, or I attend a meeting, or I do this, or I do that, or if I'm a good person, somehow my heart will change. See, I think our hearts only change when we encounter God, when we meet with the living God, when the Spirit of God changes our hearts and changes our lives. It's not just filling our head with knowledge. I've met too many people who claim to be Christians, who live horrendous lives, yet they read their Bible. They know their Bible inside out, and that's great, and we should do, but it's not applied to our hearts. I always think when I say, oh, I read my Bible, I know my scripture, so does Satan. Now, I'm not accusing people of being like him, but the enemy knows scripture too. So we don't get a medal for that. We should be knowing scripture because we want to know the one who's revealed within it. Because our hearts are changed and we want to know Jesus more because we want to be more like Christ. The Bible isn't just a history book, which it is, a history lesson. It's about a person. It's about Jesus. It's not just words on a page. Until we grasp that it's the story of God saving his people, until we've seen that, until the Spirit changes our heart, it can just be like a book on a shelf that we can misquote and we can use in the wrong way. You know, Saul would have known his Old Testament off by heart. He's the bright young thing. And he's got it all wrong. He's on the way to Damascus to imprison some Christians at the very least. And then Jesus meets with him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And this is just a side point. I'm not going to say anything more on this. But to persecute Christians is in some mysterious, divine way to persecute Christ. In some way, Christ feels that, knows that, is walking with us in it. I think that's why, as I'll read out a little bit later, the guys who um, are connected with uh, the families of those that were beheaded by ISIS are taking comfort and strength. Because they know that those that were persecuted, that Christ was with them, that Jesus was with them in it, that he hasn't just abandoned his people. It's a remarkable vision, actually, that Paul has, or Saul, sorry, although his name is Paul as well, so that's fine. Lights from heaven flash all around as you read it. And an audible voice speaks, and God intervenes directly in his life. This story is so significant that even within Acts, it appears two more times. Paul, later on in Acts, I think, 22 and 23, tells his story to people. As people are saying, well, you're the one who was killing the church. Why should we listen to you? And he says, well, I'll tell you what, I met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And it's so important that Luke records it down three times for us. It's almost one of those moments where earthly eyes kind of actually see what a heavenly reality is. He describes it himself, the Apostle Paul in Corinthians, as this. 
He says, seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus the Messiah. That's his experience of meeting with God, that he saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Isn't that something that you long for? To, to see that with our own eyes? And we kind of think, well, okay, maybe visions, I don't hear too many stories about it. Um, but they do happen today. People are having visions, people are meeting with God in the most amazing way. I was reading uh, an excerpt from a book this week, kind of accidentally, I was accidentally reading it, um, called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And it's this book about um, this American Muslim man who had a Christian friend who was basically badgering him and saying, getting into the debates, you know, the whole Allah versus Yahweh. And they were having this big kind of ding-dong, it wasn't getting them anywhere. And yet, kind of seeds will be sown, etc. And this guy was saying, well, look, if God is real and Jesus really is his son, then I'd love to see him. I'd love for some sort of divine intervention in my life. I'd love for some sort of road to Damascus experience. Some sort of subjective thing that happens to my heart that I know that there is a God. And he describes this story as he was trying to find his friends in an unfamiliar city. And he's hopelessly lost. So he's probably trusted his sat-nav. And he can't find where he's trying to go. He's in a city where he, he doesn't know anybody. And obviously his mobile phone or his cell phone, which is what he'd call it, isn't working. And he just, written in the book, he describes as he prays to God for help. As he prays, as he, as he, instead of praying to Allah, he says, okay, well, I'll give Jesus a go. And he says, as he looks out of his windscreen, he says, immediately, he sees two streaks of colour hanging from the sky. He sees a gold streak and a silver streak hanging from the sky, pointing down to earth. And so he's like, okay, that's a bit weird. So he follows it, and guess what? It's precisely to where his friends were. And from that moment on, he says, he changed. Because he encountered, or he knew that God answered prayer, that there was something to this Jesus fellow. And he carries on in these conversations, and eventually, though he was seeking Allah, he finds Jesus. What more of that, don't we? <laughs> People that are looking in the wrong place, and actually they find Jesus. Now, anybody else had that experience? No, I don't think so. <laughs> me neither. It's not a kind of normal thing to happen. Instead, for me, my kind of story is one where I just had this stirring in my soul. I don't really know how to describe it. I hadn't given my life to Jesus. I was brought up in a Christian home, but there was just something within my heart, something within my soul that said, there's something else. There's something more. There's something I was created for, designed for, to do. And it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. My two brothers, who some of you will have met, both of them are younger than me, had both become Christians before me. Both walking with Jesus. And I was seeing, remarkably, change in their life. Not so much anymore. But then, seeing that they were nice brothers. They punched me less. They taunted me less. They even said nice things about me. I was seeing a change, and there was something that was just within my heart that was saying, there's something in this, there's something in this, Jesus the Son of God thing. And gradually, gradually, over time, I realised that it was true, and that God had great plans for my life. There's some story involving rabbits as well, which is bizarre, but I'm not going to go into detail. May I save that for a rainy day? Some rabbits took part in my testimony and story. They didn't talk or anything, but... It was, it, it was significant. I think if there was talking rabbits, you'd know about it already, wouldn't you? That'd be the kind of story that people would hear about. But I realised that Jesus had died for me and risen again so that I could have a new start. 
but I was on a journey. And actually, I can't help but think that Saul was on a journey too. We always think that, bang, we're waiting for this kind of blinding light moment. We're all waiting for a road of Damascus experience. But what if Saul was on a journey? What if gradually over time Jesus had just been dropping things in? Gradually, gradually. You know, to see Stephen in the face of death give his life for Jesus, it must do something to your heart. It must say, oh, there must be something in this. If this guy is willing to die for his faith. You know, this is completely hypothetical, and there's no way of actually knowing, but there's a possibility that Saul would have heard Jesus when Jesus was alive. Either secondhand or even firsthand, he may have heard his teaching. We don't know, but it's hypothetical. It's certain that through Christians he would have heard something, because otherwise, why would he be hating it? He definitely doesn't like the message that's being shared by Christianity. But even in hearing this message of grace and love, I just get the picture that God was just drip-feeding stuff to Saul. And so instead of it being this bang out of nothing, actually the road to Damascus experience is just the final chapter, or the first chapter actually, depends on how you look at it, in Saul's new life. And so when it happens, well, he knows it's Jesus. Who are you, Lord, he says. There's something that's been running in the background for Saul. And you might feel maybe a little bit like Saul this morning. Saul hasn't been looking for God, has he, on his road to Damascus. He's certainly not been looking for Jesus, and yet Jesus clearly reveals himself to Saul first. He's gracious to him and reveals himself to him. And Saul didn't deserve that experience. Saul didn't deserve Christ to say, look, I want to save you. Just as I don't, just as you don't. But the fact that God does that is remarkable in itself. And we might not be a terrorist this morning. I don't think anybody is. But we may have done some rough stuff. There may be things in our life that we're ashamed of. That we regret. That we look back and we think, why on earth did I do that? And the question that races through our mind is, how could God love me? How could God forgive me for whatever it is? I've done all this stuff. How can I be worthy? How can I boldly I approach your throne? Have you seen me, God? Have you seen what I'm like? Saul gives me heart, because if you can change someone like Saul, who was like the ISIS of today, then he can change you as well, can't he? That if he can write off terrorism and say, I want to change you, I want to use you, I forgive you your sin, if you would trust in me, then he can offer us a new start as well. And the great thing is for us, it's already happened. Just as it had already happened for Saul. The reason Saul could be forgiven is because Jesus had already died upon the cross. Because Jesus had already been raised to new life. Jesus was already the saviour and messiah. Jesus had already, God had already shown his love for Saul in sending his one and only son for us. So that when Jesus, this is why the cross is so important for us, isn't it? This is, as he's upon the cross, it's our recklessness, it's our sin, it's our shame, it's all that stuff that he's upon the cross for. That he dies for, that he takes the punishment for. But in doing so... 
and defeating sin, hell and death and raising to new life, he gives us a fresh start. It means if we repent, if we turn around, if we follow after him, we can have a new heart too. And you know that kind of longing I was talking about, that, that unsettling in our heart, it gets satisfied. Everything makes sense all of a sudden. That's what we see with Saul all of a sudden. All his training, all his history, all his background makes sense because he can serve God with it. And that's going to be the case for all of you and all the people that we see in this world. You know, I'm going to, you might not know this, but I've done some idiotic things. That surprises a lot of you, doesn't it? I'm a bit of an idiot. I was a bit of a lad, really. Um, still male, obviously. But <laughs> I had my moments, you know. Me and my friends used to do stupid things when we were, you know, 27 last year. Or <laughs> When we, when we were younger, 17, 18. And actually, I don't celebrate those things. And I don't want you to look back at the things that you've done and celebrate the wrong things that you've done. Instead, I look back at those things and I tell you what I, I feel. I don't uh, regret and let it kind of ruin my heart. Instead, I rejoice and I celebrate that God has dealt with those things forever. That's what we should do when we look back at our past mistakes the things we've done as our sinful behaviours, the rough stuff, the stuff around the edges, is we're to say, actually, I can rejoice. I can celebrate because God is bigger than those things. Because God's grace, God's love for me, covers over those things. No matter how dark my past has been, no matter how dark days I may have in my future, God's love and grace and forgiveness is greater still. And that's the thing to consider. Wherever you are on that journey with God, it's actually God's grace, his love is greater still, which is why he died upon the cross. You see, Saul is really obvious as we read through the rest of Acts, and if you read your New Testament, he's changed forever. That's what I open with. It's really obvious, isn't it? He's a completely different guy. Not just in name, as he becomes Paul, but in so many different ways. And actually, if we're genuinely saved, it should issue in us a godly life. We should be striving to be different. Now, I'm not saying that happens overnight. I'm not going to become Saint Dan Gower straight away. But you know what? I hope I'll become holier, more godly, more gracious, more loving, more kind as time goes on. The problems are when those things don't change, when we're actually exactly the same as we were. Has God really changed our hearts and our affections? Paul, or Saul, sorry, tongue twister, on the road to Damascus, he's blinded, and so he's led to Damascus by his friends and colleagues. And you just note, actually, if you read the passage, it says that for three days, he eats nothing, and he prays. So he encounters God, and what's his response? His response is to seek after God in return. You see, we can have these amazing encounters with God, but unless we do something with it, unless we go, actually, I'm going to follow after you, God, I'm going to... You know, if, if there's that unsettling in our spirit, there's something more. Unless we respond to that, then we don't move on from the place. He still moved on to Damascus. He still journeyed on. We have to uh, respond to God's invitation, don't we? And we have a choice whether we reject it or whether we accept it. It's a significant story, isn't it, that this terrorist is saved by God forever. But I wanted to, I mentioned Ananias, didn't I? 
And this is verse 10. And the reason I want to look at Ananias a little bit for a few minutes is because he really intrigues me as a character. This is the only time we meet him. Unlike Saul, where we get pages and pages of stuff that he writes about, and we get lots more stories of his journeys, we don't hear anything else about Ananias after this point. It says there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. First thing I want to say is, what is he doing in Damascus still? He shouldn't be there. He knows that Saul is going to ravage the church. I don't know what's going on. Booming. He knows Saul's coming to ravage the church. Why is he still there? If I knew someone was coming to get me, I'd be hiding. Probably. Or I'd move back to Lancashire, where it's always sunny. Never rains. You know, I'd go somewhere else. I wouldn't be staying in the same place. Yet Ananias is still in Damascus. Is this mic playing up? Is it a normal mic? He's a normal one. Oh, beautiful. Hey. There we go. Don't have to fidget anymore. That's like my prayer's been answered. Right, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am. The Lord said to him, rise, go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. I mean, it gets a little bit confusing, doesn't it? He has a vision telling him that someone else has had a vision, and he's in that vision. It's a bit weird, <laughs> but that's what happens. And uh, he's not fled the city, he's still there, and he has this vision to go and lay his hands upon this terrorist, in effect. That's what God tells him to do. Go and pray for this man who's been terrorising the church. Ananias clearly knows who saw this by his reaction. You see his reaction there, he's like, hold on God, you've got to be kidding me. This is Saul, the same Saul who's come to kill me. Same Saul who's come to put me in jail and my family and my friends. He clearly knows who Saul is. It's like, a little, the way I think about it, it's a little bit like if I had a vision tonight that said, go and lay your hands upon Jihadi John. I mean, I'd probably struggle to find him unless I was given clear directions to where he was. But I know who he is, vaguely, because I've seen the news. You know, what, what would my reaction be? be like, yeah. Good luck with that. Why don't you send someone that's already in Syria, God? Thank you very much. <laughs> he would know who Saul is. I want you to just put yourself a moment in Ananias' shoes. I think it's helpful sometimes when we have a story in the Bible to try and live it, to try and go, okay, well, what would I do? How would I feel if this is what God did to me? Saul has come at least to Damascus to arrest him. That's at least. Flog him, beat him, possibly kill him. Possibly take his livelihood, everything that he has. Maybe some of his friends, some of his relatives. Maybe Ananias knew Stephen and was, was friends with him. And this monster, it's a fair comment, isn't it? It's coming to Damascus and you've been asked by God to go and pray for him. Could you do it? Just imagine that your own mother, or this is hypothetical by the way, but your mother or your father or Ananias' brother had been imprisoned already or had been killed already by Saul. And you're told, go and pray for this man. Go and lay your hands upon him. 
To be honest, this is just me, having grace and love would be the last thing that I would want to do. I'd be like, God, I really thank you that you've given me his name and address. I also really thank you that he's blind because he won't see me coming. And I would bring the pain. Probably. Well, that would at least be my thirst for, and then hopefully God would turn me around. <laughs> and I'd go and do actually what God wants me to. But you get the point, don't you? Maybe grace and love wouldn't be the first thing on our hearts. Maybe vengeance would be. Maybe we'd be planning, okay, how am I going to do it? How will I take him out? How will I escape? What will, my, what will my alias be for my new life? Get all my papers in place. Like Jason Bourne, that's what you'd do. But actually, this guy goes. Verse 13. He answers, Lord, I've heard about this man. I've heard how much evil he's done. I've heard he's come on authority from the chief priest to come and lock us away. But the Lord said to him, go. And this is why I think Ananias is a bit of an unsung hero, really. He goes, quietly. He puts aside his own preferences, which obviously would be to not go. In fact, he puts aside fear for his own life. He doesn't necessarily know. He's just got God's word in a vision. But he's heard the stories of Saul. He doesn't know that necessarily Saul's had this... Uh, life-changing experience on the road to Damascus. He, all he knows is that God wants to use Saul as an instrument in his kingdom. But he still goes, and I think he goes with love, but I think he also goes with forgiveness. Ananias would need to have forgiven Saul to go and pray for him. Do you not think? He would have needed to in some way said, okay God, yes, and actually I forgive him for what he's done to my brother or sister or friends in Christ in Jerusalem. There needs to be something going on in Ananias' heart to be able to go to Saul and do that. You see, if our response to evil, our response to sin, to terrorism, or crimes committed against us, what about that person at work who was a pain in the backside? How are we going to treat them? What about the school bully? How are we going to respond to them when they bully us? How are we going to combat it? You know, we think vengeance is the answer. We think hatred, we think bitterness will get us somewhere. But it just messes you up. It just messes up your head. And actually, whereas the bully is consumed with hatred, you become consumed with hatred too. That's my story growing up in school. There was this one kid I was telling earlier, he was on rollerblades once, so I pushed him over. That was a mistake. Because I just got beaten to a pulp week after week. Don't ever do that, you know, that's the lesson there. But my hatred towards him didn't help me. What I needed to do was forgive him. What I needed to do was love him, was be gracious to him, was to be kind to him. Our response to evil towards us has to be grace, love and forgiveness. You see, I think that's our weapon, if you like. Our weapon isn't vengeance and hatred, I think it's forgiveness. When we forgive someone who wrongs us and clearly knows they've wronged us, it knocks them for six. They don't see it coming. Like, what? Why are you being nice to me? Why are you being kind to me? Why are you being gracious to me when all I do is spew nonsense at you? I think we give people Jesus when we do that. When we live as Christ would want us to, 
I think we give a different story. You see, as Christians, we're to be set apart. We had at the first service of our year of our consecration. And we're to be distinct from the world, though we're in it. All too often, I don't think we live distinctly, do we? We live exactly the same as everybody else. And that's why people, when they see church, they see politics, they see drama, they see judgment. It's tragic, isn't it? That's what people see, you know, when they watch songs of praise. That's what they see. I can't be dealing with any of that. Drama, politics, what colour the chairs are. I quite like them purple, so they're going to stay purple. Do you know what I mean? Like, who cares, actually? And like the politics that takes place as people argue with each other about pointless things. That's what the world sees when they see the church. You know what the world should see when they see the church? Jesus Christ. When you're in work on Monday morning, they shouldn't see politics and drama, they should see Jesus Christ. There's something that Will said last week um, that's really stuck with me this week was, we always say, oh yeah, I went to church this weekend. We never get to Jesus Christ. Church ain't going to save people. Jesus is. Yes, man, that was good. That was an amen there for my son. Fantastic. You know, I want my life to be in such a way that people would see Jesus. And you know, to do that, I really think we have to be different in our approach to when people are evil or sin against us. I think that is the hardest thing to do, but I think it's the way that makes us most distinct and sets us apart uh, more uh, than the rest of the world. I'm not saying it's going to be easy going about forgiving people. So, for example, Simon Cousins here, in the last week, has said some quite damaging things to my heart. And about Lancashire in particular. And I could say to Simon, Simon, I forgive you for being a plank. It's okay, you obviously haven't spent enough time in sunny Blackburn and lovely Accrington. These highlights of the British Isles. Hallelujah, yeah, definitely. But that's not actually forgiveness, is it? That's not genuine. That's just me causing trouble. Actually, I think to genuinely show forgiveness to someone is actually going the extra mile for someone. Not saying, oh, I forgive you for you being nasty to me. That's not what people want to hear. They want to be, actually, oh, I really love you. Thank you for that. I just want to bless you. I, you know, you can say this thing to my heartbeat, but actually, you know, I just want to be kind to you and gracious to you and go the extra mile for you. That's how we demonstrate it. And actually, it's not optional. We kind of think it's like an optional extra, don't we? Like getting an option on your car. I've become a Christian, so I just have the air con. This is kind of the complete package. What it means to follow God is to go God's way. And it's what Ananias does. Look at verse 17. Ananias departs, enters the house, lays his hands on him. And he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and regaining his sight. Then he rose and was baptised and taking food was strengthened. He does as instructed, which is fantastic, but I want you to just note here how he refers to Saul, the ISIS terrorist monster. What's the word that comes before Saul when he greets him? He says, brother Saul. That is significant. That is huge, actually, and we can kind of skip over that a little bit. If you've been this terrorist monster, 
Christian comes up to you in Damascus, a Christian who you come to persecute, lays his hands on you and says, brother. That's huge. That's huge in the life of Saul, isn't it? And that's what happens when we trust in Christ. We join a family. We become a brother or sister. We become a part of something that's bigger than ourselves. We can say, Abba, Father, the Holy Spirit comes into our life. As we see here, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, if you're not a Christian here today, you're not a part of that family. And that's what we want you to be a part of the family. So that people can lay out and say, brother, Saul, sister, Saulie. Whatever the girly equivalent is. You know, forgiveness is really powerful. God's forgiveness changes everything. And I think if we forgive others, I think that changes circumstance too. It's a bit of some news. I talked earlier about those 21 Egyptians that were executed publicly for their faith in Christ. And this is um, some of the kind of response that's been coming out of Egypt. Last week, the brother of one of, the t of two men who were executed by ISIS presented an extraordinary message to the killers. Bashir Kamel thanked them for including their declarations in Jesus in their execution video because it had strengthened his own faith. When asked if he would forgive the men for what they have done to his brothers, he replied, my mother will open up her home to them and ask God to open their eyes. He then went on to pray for the men that God would save them. After Islamic State militants executed 21 Egyptian Christians in Libya last week, the incredible story, this is from Open Doors, the incredible story we're hearing from the Egyptian church is one of grace and forgiveness. One field worker in Egypt says, The sound of prayer requesting mercy and life, not revenge and destruction, calling loudly on God's name to come and change the hearts of the killers, is loudly heard across Egypt. Incredibly, prayers like these have been answered before. A pastor in Cairo told Open Doors, Last week, I had the privilege of meeting with two former terrorists who got involved directly in killing Christians for their faith. The Lord changed their hearts and they're now preaching the gospel and serving Jesus. One field worker has said, Some of the heartbroken wives, mothers, fathers and children of the martyrs were recently interviewed in national and privately run TV talk shows about what they are going through. Their simple expressions of love and forgiveness brought down so many tears on air and surely delivered a mind-blowing message about what the Christian faith is all about. No more direct testimony about God's love could have been communicated publicly as those few words that were uttered by the family members of those 21 martyrs. It's amazing, isn't it? Amazing that their brothers, their son, their fathers even, have been executed, and yet they're offering forgiveness to those that have done that. Doesn't that challenge you? For that muppet at work, <laughs> who you're resenting and holding a grudge against, you're not willing to forgive them. For those people that have hurt you in the past, that you're not willing to let go and forgive them. And yet here we are, some Christians in the Middle East, that are willing to forgive those that have killed people in their family. Puts us to shame a little bit, doesn't it? We've got to get real. 
without excuse. We have to be prepared to forgive people for minor things and the major things in life. Because if we're doing that, we're grasping the gospel. You know, we are so offensive to God in our sin. We are so far from him. You know, you think Saul's bad. I was just like Saul in the eyes of God, as were you. And yet God gives his son for us. God forgives us for those things. Anything and everything that we've ever done and ever will do has been paid for. And yet we can't find forgiveness for others in our hearts. It's not walking in the new life, is it? That's not walking in the freedom that God's given us. Jesus says in Matthew 6, Forgive others their trespasses, as your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Forgiveness is our weapon, if you like. Not hatred, but love. And I've been thinking about during Lent, I was going to blog on it, but I've not got around to it. Um, about changing our attitude. Do you think people at work would notice if instead of you being moany, and instead of being cynical, and instead of being critical, all of a sudden you were joyful and hopeful? All of a sudden you were positive. All of a sudden you were different. I think the, the way we communicate says a lot about our walk with God. You know, in my heart I'm cynical, and I've got to put to death the cynicism. Because that's what it means to walk with Christ. I've got to forgive first, forgive quick, repent quick to follow after. You know, what a difference would it make at your workplace and your school if our attitude of moaning and cynicism changed to joy and hope? If we expressed grace and love and forgiveness to those that have hurt us? That's why I think Ananias is a hero. That's why I think we can learn a lot from him. Because he offers those things. He goes to Paul and he lays a hand upon him. And I want to just say again, finally, as I just wrap up. This is what it says in verse 15. This is speaking of the former terrorist Saul. Talking to Ananias, go. This former terrorist is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. You see, Saul was far off from God, but God had plans for his life. And God has plans for all of our lives here today. No matter what we've done, where we're going, what we're going to do, he can use us. And I want to say that we can be used as instruments. And instruments are useful. We've thought about that. An instrument is useful for something. Too often, I think we just go, oh, well, I'll just turn up to church once a week. But that's just religion. That's not being an instrument. That's not being useful. Being useful is being God's person 24-7 with the people that you meet and the conversations that you're having. It's forgiving people. It's carrying the name of Jesus. What is the main message of Christianity? Surely it's grace. Surely it's love. Surely it's a new start. Now if our lives don't speak of that, then what are they speaking of? And that's what our lives need to speak of. That's what we need to carry as we're instruments. We carry grace and love and forgiveness. And it's radical and it's hard and it's difficult, but I think that's the Christ-like way, actually. Let me just pray, and then uh, we're going to do a couple of things. Heavenly Father, just thank you for your grace to us and your forgiveness that no matter what we've done, no matter how far from you we may feel in this moment, because you came and died for us and were raised to new life, 
we can have a fresh start, that the old is gone and the new has come. And we just pray, God, that in this moment you'd uh, speak to us about some of those things that we might be able to repent of them. That in this moment now we can decide, are we going to respond to meeting with God or are we going to reject you? And Holy Spirit, we just pray you'd come to fill our hearts and you'd change us. God, we want to offer forgiveness to those that have wronged us and hurt us. Help us to do that. Give us the grace to do that. Give us the faith to do that. Even if it means making ourselves vulnerable and potentially being hurt. Help us to see Ananias' example and live in a radical Christ-like way. In the same way that he did. In Jesus' name.